0: Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The power of a biblical whatever. Learning to think and live in light of what is true, to be a person who thinks, about whatever is honorable, it's a kind of attitude that doesn't get rattled easily. Justice is core to what God's gonna label a healthy attitude. Because when the Bible tells us to think about whatever is pure, it's gonna be talking about this concept of without defect in light of our conduct and then our relationality. He's always watching, amen? amen. And I don't say that to freak you out. He loves you, but he also wants you to be holy. And he wants you to be pure. (laughs) Nothing like seeing yourself yell on video before you have to come up. One of the production guys said, You're not yelling, you're passionate. I said, Yeah, tell that to my kids. (laughs) And so. Anyways, uh, I, I, there's a little bit of a mismatch this week between the bulletin and the outline. You'll notice in the bulletin, if you look closely, the title of the message was Think to Please, and then in your outline, it's Think Love. And uh, and, and if you're wondering if it's because I was confused, the answer is yes. I, uh, I, when I was doing my study on, on these all these eight words. I did an initial study and came up with the titles. But then, as I, as you'll see as we go along today, as I get deeper into the uh, actual word that we're looking at this week, the attitude, uh, more clarity comes. So I think it was Thursday afternoon. I sent an email from my home office to uh, Nick and the production guys, and I said, Hey, you know, a change of title. Uh, and and they said, Well, we can change it, on everything but the bulletin because that's already been printed. So uh, you'll see as we go along. I don't think it'll ruin your week. I think. it'll be uh, pretty good for you. Let's pray. Father, we're going to turn to your Word now. And as we do, God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us insight and understanding, a right understanding of what you have revealed. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us the will to be able to act upon that which we know to be true, and Lord, to have the kind of attitude that, as we're going to see today, can truly bring pleasure to our lives and then to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I hinted to in my prayer here, there is not one of us here today that doesn't love some sort of pleasure in our lives. Not one of us, but we love the pleasure of a good friend, we love the pleasure of a nice vacation, we love the pleasure of a really good day at work, we love the pleasure of a good meal, we love the pleasure of our children, Uh, we love the pleasure of a beautiful piece of art, we love the pleasure of a nice walk in the woods, we even love the pleasure at times of a good sermon. There are lots of things in our lives today that you and I find pleasure in. When you think about it, it's an interesting idea, this idea of pleasure. Webster's Dictionary defines pleasure as a state of gratification, a feeling of happiness, enjoyment, or satisfaction. And you see, I believe that the human soul is actually hardwired by God to run in great part on the fuel of pleasure. I believe that. Uh, The founders of our country thought so. The famous Declaration of Independence states this We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, say it with me, happiness. That's pleasure. Even the great Westminster Confession, as it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Answers it by stating, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Once again, there's pleasure. So I think it's a good discussion for you and I to have this idea of pleasure and what God says about it and where we find it. And so it's no coincidence then that as we continue our series here on God's top eight things that he wants to be a part of our attitude that we should think about that number five on the list says this, finally brothers, whatever is lovely, think about these things, whatever is lovely. Now, some of you right now are going, Jamie, I don't see anything about pleasure in that at all. So what gives? Well, there's a lot that gives here, and I want to show you this because I found it very fascinating in my study over the last few weeks. As I mentioned before I prayed, Um, I changed titles in this message at least once this week. And the reason is, is because when this verse was written 2,000 years ago in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, the word for lovely here is the Greek word prosphile. And what's interesting about that Greek word, now don't miss this, is that it only occurs one time in all of the New Testament. One time. So that threw me when I initially realized that because I initially thought that this would make it very hard to understand the precise meaning of a word that only appears once in all of the Greek New Testament and not all that often, if at all, in classical Greek. How in the world can you know what that word really means? But I found upon further investigation that this wasn't as hard as I originally thought. You see, this word prosphile is actually a combination of two very common Greek words. The word pros, which means to or toward or with, and then the Greek word phileo, that some of you have heard, because it's one of the four primary Greek words for love. And once I recognized this, the meaning of the word prosphile, which we translate lovely here, became pretty clear. Because putting these two words together, pros and phileo, to form prosphile, the most wooden translation would be this, toward love. Think in such a way as to move in your thoughts and your life toward love, which is why it's translated lovely here in our passage. Now, here's what you need to know, however. It's not just any kind of love. I mean, it's not like a Valentine's Day kind of love that this is talking about here. But if you've listened closely, it's philetto kind of love. Some of you might remember C.S. Lewis's famous book called The Four Loves, in which he lays out the four kinds of love that the Greek world talked about that influenced the writing of the New Testament. And you might remember that those four loves, and some of you have heard this, are these, agape, storge, eros, and then the one we're looking at today, phileo. Agape is that unconditional love that God has for us and that we're to have for others. It is, you know, no strings attached, I love you no matter what kind of love. Agape. Storge is an affection-oriented love, a brotherly kind of love reserved for family and even some close friends. Eros is obviously romantic love. Which is where we get the English word erotic from. It's the kind of love in the Bible, in the Greek world, that only existed between marriage and that kind of relationship. And then phileo is a friendship kind of love. Don't miss this. A love based on affinity, Likes or dislikes, as the famous Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says, it's an affection-based love on personal attachment. So phileo love at its core is all about pleasure. It's a love that you give or receive based on that which makes you glad, like when you choose a close friend. It's a love in which you prefer something or someone precisely because it makes you feel good. And as we're going to see in a minute, this isn't limited to just human relationships, but in the Bible, it uses this word phileo to include things like food, sleep, wine, knowledge, the things that can give us pleasure. The Greeks actually used this word a lot before the New Testament came along, and they used this word more to describe what they like, and then they used the word agape to describe what they love. Because the point is, it's usually the things that you and I like that tend to give us pleasure. And so what Philippians 4.8 is getting at then, when it tells us to have as a part of our attitude whatever is lovely prosphile, toward love. It's telling us really to have an attitude that moves toward pleasurable love, toward those things in our lives that can make us happy and even glad. And this is why I actually like the New Revised Standard Version translation of this passage when it says whatever is pleasing. I think that's actually more to the point. I think lovely is the best technical uh, translation, if you will, because it's toward love, lovely. But I think this idea of pleasure and pleasing is more toward a, uh, the, the point of, of what it's getting at using this word. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, you gotta realize that Christians don't usually talk about the idea of pleasure. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we're really good at talking about things like sacrifice, faithfulness, devotion, and discipline, but we usually leave the discussion for pleasure up to people like Mick Jagger or Madonna, right? I mean, it's more the decadent ones in our culture that we allow to talk about pleasure, and the rest of us as Christians talk about more serious things. And though things like faithfulness and service and devotion and sacrifice and discipline are all very important in following Jesus, I'm not denying that, what we need to do today is honor what this passage is saying before us and explore a little bit of this idea of pleasurable love, especially as it starts to invade our attitude on a daily basis. Because I'm gonna go back to what I said in the beginning. All of us here today, tell me if this isn't true for you, tend to function on the fuel of pleasure, whether you realize it or not. Your life surrounds pleasure, and what we're going to see today is that that's not a bad thing. But it does need to be a certain kind of pleasure, a phileo pleasure that has a particular focus to it. And as you're gonna see, even some guardrails put upon it. Otherwise, we do just become a bunch of hedonists like our culture today and not the Christ followers that God is looking for. And so our time remaining today, I wanna share with you three guiding principles that I believe form what I call the attitudes of pleasurable love. Three very practical thoughts that flow directly out of this biblical focus on phileo, three principles that can guide us in our attitude of pleasurable love. And here's the first one, and that is to look for pleasurable love in legitimate places. Let me repeat that. Look for pleasurable love in legitimate, as opposed to illegitimate, places. Now, what is this about? I need to confess something to you guys. I I intentionally kinda tricked you earlier. I said to you earlier when I was explaining to you this word prosphile and then phileo that it includes things in the Bible like food, wine, sleep, and knowledge. Do you remember me saying that? Some of you like that. You tuned in at that moment and, and, and you got that. And with no more mention of this, it would seem that I was suggesting at that time that the Bible was adding legitimacy to each one of these areas, but not so fast. Because when you look at the context of how the Bible uses phileo, pleasurable love, in each of these instances, you begin to see that it adds legitimacy to finding pleasure in these things sometimes. And then at other times, it doesn't. And this becomes incredibly helpful and instructive for you and me when it comes to finding legitimate pleasure around us. Let me show you what I mean. Let's just focus on food for a second here right now and its correlation to phileo or pleasurable love. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, what we call the LXX or the Septuagint, in Genesis 27, Isaac is in the process of blessing his son, you might remember it should have been Esau and ended up being Jacob. And in verse 4, Isaac says this. It's easy to gloss over, but instructor for us today, he says, Prepare for me delicious food, such as I love phileo, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So obviously here, you have a legitimate... God-ordained use of pleasurable love, phileo, saying that it's okay to find some pleasure in even food. I mean, I actually kind of like this verse after reading it this week. I don't know about you, but I thought this could be like the theme verse for Chick-fil-A or something like that. I mean, bring me the delicious food, such as I love. Never met anybody yet that didn't love Chick-fil-A. And so that's what this is getting at here. That it's actually good and okay to find enjoyment, phileo, in even your favorite food. But then look at what it says using this same word, phileo, in Hosea 3, verse 1. It says, even as the Lord loves, That's agape, by the way, the first use of love in this verse, because it says, Loves the children of Israel. That's God's unmerited love for his people. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love, different word here, phileo, cakes of raisins. There's food again. Now, I love this brother here. He's giving me a look like, What in the world is this saying here? I did some research on this passage this week because it's not clear when you initially look at it. And, and obviously the question becomes, why is God down on cakes of raisins here? I mean, we know from our understanding of Middle Eastern culture that cakes of raisins were a high sugar delicacy back then, and that people loved them. I mean, again, it was a, a food that people were very tempted by and very much enjoyed. And what most Bible experts surmise here is that the reason that God is down, on finding pleasurable love in cakes of raisins here is because this cake could have been used, though the context isn't completely clear, but it seems like it was used in the sacrifice to other gods. In other words, it says there that they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So the context seems to be that this was used in sacrifice to the pagan gods around them. But it's interesting, whether that's true or not, what they all point out, the Bible experts, is that because these were a very tasty and tempting delicacy, at the very least, what God is saying to Israel here is that you have taken too much pleasure in these cakes, and probably even for the wrong reasons, and in enjoying this food, you've enjoyed it too much. Don't miss this, guys. Their love of food had become an idol, most likely literally, very similar to how a friend of mine recently confessed that when he goes to bed at night, he goes to bed dreaming and thinking of his morning cup of coffee and he was actually confessing that to me. He said, you know, what's wrong with me that I don't go to bed thinking of God or my wife or whatever? I go to bed dreaming of the morning cup of coffee, and I said, yeah, you're really sick, and, and, and you probably… I mean, I would never do something like that, you know, and, but, but he was confessing that, that he had too much of an obsession, uh, on this case, coffee or food, so, simply note here, let's all add all this together. You got a legitimate use of love for food when Isaac is blessing his son, the Chick fil A verse, but then you have an illegitimate love for food when it becomes an idol that begins to replace even God Himself for our daily devotion. And though this isn't the point of the message, tell me that isn't practical for Christians today. Amen. I mean, some of you don't get what I mean by that. Here's what I've observed about Christians today. We tend to frown on our sex-focused, alcohol-abusing, decadent-loving 21st century culture, and we should because none of that is good, but then we go out and gorge ourselves at a buffet after church without a care in the world. And most Christians really don't give a lot of thought to their holiness, to their attitude, to their love, their pleasure, when it comes to even something simple like food. And if you think that's a little bit too guilt producing, I got to tell you we're not even done yet. That's just one instance in the Bible. I mean, in following this same word phileo throughout the Old Testament it warns us to similarly not find too much pleasure in wine or sleep. This is found in Proverbs 21:17 and then Isaiah 56:10 respectively, but that it's always okay to find your pleasure in wisdom and one's family. This is found in Proverbs 29.3 and Genesis 37.4, respectively. And then we turn the page to the New Testament, and we find a similar pattern in this use of phileo, that Jesus used this word to describe the Pharisees' love of the crowds and the Pharisees' love of the place of honor, saying it's never good to find your pleasure there, in some public sense of having people say, boy, aren't you godly, and then you in a prideful way enjoying pleasure in that, Jesus says that's always a wrong use of pleasure. But then Jesus uplifts the pleasurable love of friends, like with Lazarus, this word is used to describe Jesus' relationship with Lazarus, Peter and John. And then Paul the Apostle in Titus 3, verse 15, even uses this word phileo, pleasurable love, to describe how good it is to love your church and the people of God. So you're starting to see, hopefully, that there are legitimate places to find pleasurable love like family, friends, wisdom, and knowledge, church. And there are illegitimate places for us to try to find pleasurable love, like too much wine or too much sleep or the attraction and applause of the crowds. But then there's even places where it's okay under certain conditions to find pleasure, like with food, but then other conditions, like when it becomes a god, that you should be leery there. So simply note, before we move on here, that the Bible says there are legitimate areas of pleasure and there are illegitimate areas of pleasure. And so it really adds credence, I think, to that old country song by Johnny Lee that we were raised with that says, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the idea, is that many of us live in a world where we are tempted to look for love in wrong places, and the Bible said that way before Johnny Lee came along. Now, with this understanding, right on the coattails of this is a second attitude very, uh, of, of pleasurable love, very similar to this first one, but much more positive, and, and, and here it is, and that's the, the second thing we need to do then is foster and nurture the healthy sources of pleasurable love i think that's really the main point of philippians 4 8 when it says whatever is lovely whatever is pleasurable in the realm of phileo love think about these things it's saying foster and nurture the healthy sources of it and what are these sources there's actually quite a few i mean this is an amazing liberating thought whatever is lovely but as i sat in my home office this week given a lot of thought and some prayer to how we wanted to explore this idea of whatever is lovely, it hit me that there are really three general sources, biblically speaking, of this kind of pleasure. And here they are, I'll give them to you all up front, and that is safe people, solid activities, and a sound view of God. So where is it that you and I find our pleasurable love? Where is it that you and I have total freedom to find great pleasure in, in our daily lives, safe people, solid activities, and a sound view of God. First, consider safe people as a source for your daily pleasure. I got to tell you folks, this is truly the heart of the Bible's use of the word phileo. As I mentioned earlier, it is used in light of food and wine and, and wisdom and some other things, but the vast majority Of the 50 plus times that the Bible uses this word phileo, it is used in the context, now don't miss this, of finding pleasure in safe harbor friendship. That's the way the Bible uses it. So this word is used in the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, to describe Jesus' love of the Apostle John, as well as his love for Lazarus and his love for Peter, the idea being that Jesus took special, friendship-type, pleasurable love in these three guys. And then it's even worth noting, and this blows me away, that in John five twenty, this same word phileo is used to describe the love that God the Father has for God the Son, Jesus. And you're saying, well, shouldn't that be the word agape? I mean, the Trinity has agape love for each other, and yes, that's true, but isn't it instructive that it uses the word phileo there in John 5? Why? Because it's telling us that the Trinity for all of eternity took pleasure in relationship with each other, and that there is such thing as safe harbor friendships for you and I to find great pleasure in. You see, safe harbor relationships are built upon shared values. That's what the word phileo is all about. They're built upon affinity and even similar experiences, and they become wonderful places for you and me to find joy in. I I, I don't know how to share what I'm about to share um, clearly because I really don't want to be misunderstood here. I I've given a lot of thought over the years to this idea of friendship, especially for me as a pastor who tends to live a fairly, if not very, public life, and, you know, I I live in a world in which everybody considers me a friend, and I'm honored by that, but let's face it, I only have room for so many friends, and I mean really close friends, and so over the years, I've had to be um, very discerning about who I let into my, my full private world but but I know I need people, so I do let others in. Obviously, I have Kim, my, my wonderful wife, but on a, on a male level, a friendship level, who, who do I let in? And over the years, uh, without even realizing it, I've developed um, a whole kind of list of what I look for in safe harbor friendships. And before I share this list with you, I, I wanna make one thing clear. This is my list. This is where I, I wrestle with whether I should even share this because my list might not be your list. type love is based upon affinity and shared values and shared experiences, so how Jamie comes up with his list might be different than yours, but with that understanding, let me share with you some of mine, and this might help you uh, in sparking your thinking about what your list looks like, but here's what mine is. Look up here on your monitors. First thing I look for is honesty, and I don't mean just like little honesty. I mean like red dot honesty. If you go to the mall and you look at the map, the red dot means you are here. So anybody who's going to be in my circle, you better be able to share where you are right now with total honesty, because I'm going to do the same with you, good or bad, up or down, where are you? Secondly, I look for integrity. In other words, I'm a Christian. (laughs) I believe in having rather high moral values, and though I want us all to be honest about it, I can take anything somebody shares. At the same time, I I want my friends to want to work on their very lives and become the man or the man, in this case, that God wants you to be. Third thing I look for is self-knowledge. I believe self-knowledge is critical, knowing where you came from, who you are, the machinations of your own soul, what your motivations are about. I, 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 you know, the Eagles once sang a song, don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. I don't think that's most Christians' problem. I mean, most Christians aren't so introspective that it's driving them crazy. Most of us aren't introspective enough. I look for friends personally that have some introspection to their lives. I look for candor. Just tell me it like it is. Don't beat around the bush. I look for humor. This is huge to me. My dad raised me this way. My dad would make uh, jokes at a lot of different things in life, and my mom would say, Frank, it's not funny. And my dad would say, yes, Carolyn, it is funny. And I find that I've inherited that trait from him. And let's face it, most Christians don't have a very good sense of humor. And so the reality, they really don't, because so we're so intense. And, and, and I get that. I love you guys for it, and you're under the umbrella of grace. I just don't want to be your close friend. And so the reality is, in my close friendships, we all better be able to laugh. I look for other-centeredness. Nine times out of ten in conversations I have with people, it's all about them. And, and, and I love the odd conversation I have with somebody in which they say to me, how many kids you got? What are their ages? Where are they in school? Um, how are you and Kim doing? Um, where are you from again? Tell me about Chagrin Falls. I, I don't need that necessarily from people, but it's refreshing when I experience that with somebody else. Those are my safe harbor friendships. Acceptance is key. If I'm gonna ask for honesty, then you better accept me, no matter what I share. Uh, spiritual depth is huge to me. I'm a theologian. I love God. There's not a moment that goes by any day that I don't think about the Lord. And so my close friendships are those who share that that obvious passion. And then this will surprise some of you, but a love of life as just a gift from God to be enjoyed in the small things as well as the large things. I was tempted to say to my dear friend who shared with me the cup of coffee thing, I was tempted to say to him, just chill out so you enjoy a cup of coffee. But he said, no, this is a spiritual battle for me. It's like an obsession. And I said, okay, I, I get that. And again, that's mixing spiritual depth with the love of life. See, this is just my list. I, I have very few really close friends. That shouldn't surprise you. I have just a handful. Some of them are back in Cleveland. One is in London, Ontario, a few here. But the ones that I would count on maybe one or two hands that are my safe harbor friendships all meet this criteria. And I don't force it upon them. I never tell them about it. I don't have a checklist. That would be really cruel. But in my mind, this is what I look for. And quite frankly, this is the marriage that Kim and I have. And that brings me to another point here, and that's that family should be included in your list of safe harbor friendships. And I know as soon as I say that, some of you say, well, my family isn't, and I get that. I mean, I get that there are times where family is not safe at all, but what you need to own today is the reality that God did design family to be safe harbor places. So as parents, we need to strive to make our families safe harbor kind of places. Husbands and wives should do that for each other, even extended family to the degree that you can. And the reality is is that we need to be shooting for that. One of the first key areas we must foster and nurture as a healthy source of pleasurable love is safe harbor people. I promise you, it will give you joy as you develop that. Now, more quickly, notice the second area I put up there, and that is to have solid activities as a source of healthy pleasure. I couldn't think of a different word other than solid. My friend Mario D'Urtenzio is one of the... Uh, he works with a lot of young kids, and he's really with it, and he's into the language today. And, and, and once in a while, I'll preach a sermon, and he'll just send me a text that says this, solid, dude, solid. And so I actually looked that word up in Webster's Dictionary because I, I, I didn't know exactly how i define it. Solid is described as something of good, substantial quality, it's the opposite of that which is hollow. And I thought to myself, that's a perfect image for you and I in finding pleasure in things and entities around us and even activities. Ask yourself, is this activity, is this thing of good, substantial quality, or is it hollow? So what I loved about our My Story that we looked at earlier is that those two guys came to a point in life where they said the abuse of alcohol is not a good substantial area for me to find joy in. It's hollow, and it's ruining my life. And I think it takes guts to look at your activities and say, are they giving me pleasure, yes or no? But here's the deal. Sometimes they give us pleasure, and they're not good for us, amen? There's lots of things like that, and so the reality is you've got to ask yourself, do they meet the criteria of a solid, if you will, godly activity? And here's the deal, guys. I'm not going to list what those activities should or shouldn't be. You can discern that. It's not rocket science. But the reality is, is that I have never been let down by this book and or godly trusted others around me when it comes to discerning what's a solid activity or not. So the two things I do in my life when I'm at all hazy on whether I should be finding pleasure in this area of my life or not, is I say, what does the Bible say? And if it's a gray area, gray area you know what I do, and I've told you guys before, WWKD, what would Kim do? That's part of my value there, because my wife knows me very, very, very well, and she's a wise woman. And I've told you this whole story, I don't need to belabor it again, but there have been plenty of times over the years where I think a certain financial purchase is going to give me pleasure, usually centered around a car, and my wife will remind me that it's not a good time in our personal finances to do this, that wisdom would dictate otherwise. And I listen to her almost every time because we have this idea that we need to agree in marriage. Imagine that. And and, and the reality is is that she almost always has been right. And and let me make something very clear. My wife is not a killjoy. You know her, Susan. She's not. In fact, Kim has said to me, and and isn't this an amazing wife? Men, you're going to salivate after this. But she has said to me, I take pleasure in the fact that you take pleasure in cars. That's an amazing wife, isn't it? I mean, I go after the Barrett Jackson and she's smiling. And the reality is that I have a wife who says, I take great pleasure in the things that you take pleasure in, Jamie, even small things like cars. But she said, we've got to be wise about this. We got retirement coming up and we got kids to get in college and all this other stuff. So let's be wise. And I've got to tell you, I have never gone wrong listening to that kind of wisdom. And so part of learning to foster a healthy source of pleasure when it comes to activities, now don't miss this, is to allow the Bible and godly others to be our guardrails to ensure that we don't go off the reservation when it comes to finding pleasure in our lives. So you got safe others, solid activities, and then a third, but certainly that last healthy source of pleasurable love is a sound view of God. Now listen to me very closely, because so many Christians miss this one. Here's the foundation of this third but not last point or source of love. God is a God of profound relationality. Give me a head nod that you understand that, or at least understand when I say that. See, I don't think most Christians today get this. When I hear most Christians describe their experience with God I'm always disappointed when they describe it as an it, and it happens to me way too often. I'll say something like, hey, Dennis, tell me about your experience with the Lord, and he'll say, well, I was raised with it, and then when I was in high school and college, I fell away from it, and then I came back to it, and now I'm doing really well with it. And I want to say to myself, what's it? What is it? Last I looked, we're having a relationship with the living God, and it's a him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you see, here's what I think people mean by it. They've reduced their Christianity to a lifestyle. They've reduced their Christianity to a set of doctrines that they believe. They've reduced their Christianity to a worldview that guides them, and none of that is bad. That's all part and parcel of your faith. But at the very bottom line, it's a love relationship with the living God that you and I have. And the reason that it's so important for you to see it that way, and that's why I call this a sound view of God, is because if you have anything less than that, you will not find pleasure in God, and you will be an accident waiting to happen in other areas of your life. Otherwise put, if God doesn't meet your pleasure needs, then you're going to look for it somewhere else. This is exactly what the quote I put on your outline by Thomas Aquinas, who said this over a 1,000 years ago, was getting at. He said, no one can live without delight. And that is why a man deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. Because you and I are hardwired to find pleasure, so you're going to find it. And if you don't find it in God, you're going to try to find it somewhere else. And by the way, this is why we talk about all the things that we talk about around here. Do you understand that? I mean, when I talk to you guys about truth and sound doctrine, when I talk to you about the reality and the grace of God, when I talk to you about prayer as a lifestyle or Bible study or small group fellowship or service or even that personal time that you need to spend with God, the old quiet time, please know I don't do that to make you a more disciplined Christian. Do you understand that? I mean, if discipline results, then so be it. I do it to help you have an experience with the living God who loves you And through His Son, Jesus Christ, has forgiven you, and through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, wants you to experience Him and find your pleasure in Him. John Piper believes this so deeply that he says it's actually okay for Christians to engage in what he calls Christian hedonism, which is where Christians find pleasure, but find pleasure in their relationship with Almighty God. And the reality is, is that we need to do this a lot more than many of us do. So these are the attitudes of pleasurable love, what it means to think phileo love. Look for love in legitimate places versus illegitimate ones. Foster and nurture it through healthy sources, safe people, solid activities, a sound view of God. And then a third and final thing we must remember, and with this we will be done, and yet this is so important if you're going to find pleasure through this attitude here today, and that is to always remember to give more than to get. One of the great dangers that I have, uh, am aware of today as I talk to you guys about pleasure <laughs> is that you're going to go out of here today and say, Pastor says it's okay to find pleasure, and I'm going to seek pleasure for pleasure's sake. And I need to pull you back from that right now. Here's why. Why? Jesus taught us this. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul's on the shores of Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to the church there, and he gives them these parting words. He says, in all things I've shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must remember to help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That word blessed there, as many of you know, means to make happy. It's a very similar word to phileo because it's all about pleasure. And so it's telling us here that a key part of our happiness is found, now don't miss this, when we stop seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake and begin to just get other-focused and other-centered and allow pleasure to come through the back door rather than the front door. And so as you and I give thought today to the kind of attitude that doesn't mind seeking pleasure, because that is the freedom this attitude gives us here, whatever is lovely, whatever is pleasing, Let's remember that it's going to come many times through the back door of getting our eyes off ourselves and our eyes even off of pleasure and fixing them on God and others and allowing Him, as C.S. Lewis says, to surprise us with joy. And all I can tell you, I've been doing this for 34 years now, is that that really works. One story and then we're done. This is going to be a hard week for a couple of few friends of mine. um, There's a family in our church here that uh, about a year ago had a very, very tragic loss in their lives and very, very, very painful. It was the loss of a child. And I once had somebody say to me in London, Ontario, when I was pastoring there, a businessman who lost his child, he said, Jamie, uh, no one will ever know pain like the pain of losing a child and I hope you never have to experience it. And then he said this, he said, God did not intend this world for children to go before parents. And he was right. God made this world so the parents grow old and die, and children grieve that, and then children grow old and die, and, and that's the way it's supposed to work. But we live in a very fallen world that's not our home, and sometimes it doesn't work that way. And a family in our church experienced this about a year ago, and th- this month is the anniversary of that. So I'll be loving on them this week, their dear friends, and, 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 and I've been with them this whole year, and it's been a joy, though painful, to walk through this with them. But one of the things I've noticed as they've gone through this year, and if this family is here right now, they would tell you this, is that even in the midst of the awful grieving and the difficulty of just missing their child, there have been a few bright spots, a few spots of pleasure, a few spots of joy. Some of them have come just through drawing close to the Lord, as the Lord does in our lives. But they would also tell you that some of them have come because the Lord gave them an opportunity to minister to other families who've experienced a similar loss. And it's been amazing to watch how, say, this man will come back after a business trip and he'll say, You know, I was in Colorado and I met a family that, that just, I mean, how, how, how would this coincidence happen that experienced a similar loss and we were talking about and is able to minister to them? And I can just hear in his voice and I can see in his eyes that the Lord used that to bring some pleasure, to bring some. Joy, even in the midst of all of the grief, to be able to be used by God, to minister to others in the midst of even profound, profound grieving, and you see, I think that's the way that that works. That even in the darkest times of life, where, as the psalmist says, there is, you know, crying in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Even when you're weeping in the night that God is in that. Psalm 139 says you can't go anywhere. that He is not. So God is in that. And there's times that even he wants to bring you glimpses of pleasure and joy there. But it almost always comes when you get your eyes off yourself and onto him. So here's the bottom line. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Christians are not joy-filled people of immense pleasure. I know we don't always act such, and maybe today we will. But the reality is, is that we are. It's just that we have a little bit of a different take on joy and pleasure than our world does. Whatever is lovely, think about these things. Whatever is toward love, toward pleasurable love, think about these things. Look for it in legitimate places and then foster those places of safe people and of solid activities and a sound view of God. And always remember to give more than you get. And here's my promise to you guys. As you do that, you just might be surprised with joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I am just, Lord, as you know, been so ministered to in this series myself, just having the privilege to spend 20 or so hours a week looking at one word and the whole history of thought behind that word. I'm grateful. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that as we've shared some of this stuff today, that this might be of encouragement to these dear folks, as well as at other campuses and venues, that, God, we would all go now here thinking in our very thoughts, whatever is lovely, what is it that gives me pleasure? Where am I safe harbor people? And what are the solid or not-so-solid activities I need to evaluate? And, Lord, what is in my sound view of you that gives me pleasure? God, may those be the things that we think about. And may you surprise us with joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.